0: Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. To be fair, I'm pretty sure Frank Sinatra could have made a recording of his voice imitating fingernails on a chalkboard, and it would have sounded incredible. Uh, But, you know, this is just a weird song. Uh, right? Uh, so I spoke at a local Christian school chapel on uh, this past week, and I felt that it was my obligation as I stood in front of those those young people to, to get them ready for Valentine's Day. Uh, because, you know, the, the, the young men in the room, I know they're... I, I told the ones that didn't yet have girlfriends to at least wait till Wednesday. Because if they didn't, they were on the hook. But for the ones who were already... Uh, had a significant other in their life, I told them they need to check with their mom about how to make Valentine's Day special. Don't check with dad. Uh, Make sure you check with mom about how to make Valentine's special. So gentlemen, let me just encourage you that if you're looking for playlists to uh, to woo your sweetie on Tuesday, maybe leave this song off. Um, I mean, again, you think about a a love song, and a, a love song is intended to praise the virtues of a significant other. But again, think about what the song said. Your looks are laughable, unphotographable. Yet you're my favorite work of art. Is your figure less than Greek? Is your mouth a little weak when you open it to speak? Are you even smart? That's what the song said. Now again, Frank Sinatra singing it makes it sound like that. Man, this is a you know candlelight dinner and some spaghetti. I mean, you know, Lady in the Tramp style. I mean, that's what you're thinking here. But what an odd take on romance. Gentlemen, please don't look at your wife and say, is your mouth a little weak? When you speak, are you even smart? I don't care how how you say it, it's not gonna go well for you. Maybe in 1937, the song, when it was first written, they had a different take on romance. To be fair, the song communicates a high degree of honesty about the enduring nature of true love in light of our human imperfections. There's a sense to the song of I love you anyway, in spite of your potential imperfections. But gentlemen, as you are well aware, your wife or significant other does not have any imperfections. Amen? Amen. There you go. (laughs) Say it loud, gentlemen. This is your chance. I'm setting you up here. There we go. (laughs) And even though it may be true, you might want to find a better way to communicate it. That doesn't start with the phrase, your looks are laughable, unphotographable. <laughs> Thankfully, the Apostle Paul speaks with a little more clarity when it comes to uh, what he's trying to convey to us. You may be left wondering about the wisdom of the old Rogers and Hart song, but you can't be left questioning the wisdom of the Apostle Paul we understand that a love song is intended to, to, to praise the virtues of its object. Even the Song of Solomon, which is a love song, it's got some very nuanced language in it. Again, gentlemen, beware what you use from the Song of Solomon. Goats probably should never be involved in telling, describing your wife's beauty. But the Song of Solomon is clearly praising the virtues of Solomon and his Shunammite love interest. When we encounter a prayer of thanksgiving in the Bible, We need to pay attention to what that prayer says because A prayer of thanksgiving is is expected to give us examples of of what we should be grateful for, of how to show gratitude to things that are praiseworthy. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's what a prayer of thanksgiving is intended to do. It's intended to give us specific things to consider and specific things to reflect on. And you won't find confusing gratitude in God's word. Last week we began our journey through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. I'm so excited about this series. We looked at just the very first verse. Last week we talked about the founding of the church of Thessalonica back from Acts chapter 17. Go back and listen to last week's sermon if you missed it. By the way, there's a really convenient way for you to go back and listen to content from last week. It's called the Chat Valley app. Look it up and download it on your smartphone. There's a tab at the bottom that says Media. And there you can listen to content from yesterday and weeks gone by. So feel free to check that out. We'll be glad to help you get that set up if you need any help. But today we're going to start unpacking the rest of this first chapter with Paul's expression of thanksgiving from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses just 2 and 3 today. And just as a clue, if the virtues Paul mentions are worthy of gratitude, then they are things that we should pay attention to and things that we should emulate as well. This is not like a confusing love song. There's no reason to be confused about what Paul says here. He is speaking with remarkable clarity when he gives us these verses from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you've got your place, hopefully I've given you time, get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 2 and 3. I will ask you to stand this week in honor of reading God's word from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. The apostle Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for this simple expression of gratitude that Paul has for his church. I pray, Father, that we might reflect that same attitude of gratitude as we engage with one another and as we look at a lost world. Father, help us to be thankful for your goodness and help us to practice these things for which Paul is thankful. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. could be seated. Paul's letters all have a very similar structure. You start in Romans and go all the way through Titus, and the first chapter of every letter looks very similar with some, some nuance here and there. You have all the introductory stuff, who's it from, who's it to. But then you almost always find a a prayer or an invocation for the recipient. The church at Thessalonica is no different, and it's not just a generic thanksgiving that Paul has. It's almost always very specific. Paul says, I'm thankful for these things. I'm thankful for these characteristics. He says, when I think about you, these are the things that I think about. This is how I'm compelled to pray for you. And as I was thinking about this, it occurred to me That there's an important couple of questions that we need to ask here. When other people pray for you, what is the first thing that comes to their mind? When other people pray for you, what is the first thing that comes to their mind? Now again, you don't know what other people are thinking, but you know how you are. You know what your character is. You know how you portray yourself around other people. So it may be a scary question for you to ask. When other people pray for you, what are they praying for? In order to get an honest answer, we need to make sure that we're not looking at our lives through those rose-colored lenses. You might think, "Well, when other people pray for me, the first thing that comes to mind is how faithful I am." Or you might think, "When other people pray for me, the first thing that comes to mind is is what a good friend I am." But what might actually be happening is that when somebody is praying for you, they may be praying that God would help you with your pride. If we're honest, I'm reminded of the church at Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. In the opening portion of the letter that Jesus is giving to the church in Sardis, he says this. He says, I know your works. I'm aware of what you're doing, he says. You have the reputation, meaning other people think this about you. You have the reputation of being alive, but Jesus says you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Jesus says you got a reputation but what, what's real doesn't match your reputation and I know that's true for the church at Sardis. I hope it's not true for us. We have a reputation but our work doesn't bear that our reputation is accurate because there is reputation and then there is reality. It ought to be our goal to bring both our reputations and our realities into alignment in such a way that when people think about us, they can't help but think about the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not suggesting that we structure our lives to please men. We don't want to be pleasers of men. But I do believe that we should work to order our lives as true followers of Jesus so that people are compelled to think about Jesus when they think about us. Like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Paul's expression of gratitude here for the church has three components. It's a three-point sermon that Paul's given to us here. And each of these three points is worthy of our consideration. Paul looks at the church, he writes these words, he says, I give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in my prayers, remembering before our God and Father, he first says, your work Of faith. And we could spend a long time unpacking those three little words. There's a whole multitude of sermons in those three little words. A work of faith. Two words, book in the phrase, are incredibly significant, especially when you put them together. Again, we talk about them individually. We know what faith is. Faith is kind of hard to define though, right? I mean, we, we kind of understand what faith is, but, but to come up with just a concise definition of what faith is, we, we, we might struggle there. Thankfully, the Bible gives us some tools to help us understand faith better. Hebrews chapter 11, verse one says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is the mechanism by which the unseen realities of God and the gospel come to bear in our lives. Here's the thing, you can't see the gospel You can't see Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected. Those are not things that you can see any longer because those are things that have already happened. Jesus has ascended into heaven. He has left eyewitnesses behind who were able to record what has taken place, but you can no longer see the gospel. You can no longer see Jesus on the cross. You can no longer see the tomb that's empty. I suppose you could go to Israel and visit the garden tomb, but you get the point. It happened a long time ago. It is no longer something that you, you weren't there on resurrection morning. You can't see it. But if you are a Christian today, you believe it. You believe by faith that which you cannot see by sight. But it is by faith that the gospel does its work in our lives. We understand the gospel. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, was crucified on a cross in our place for our sins. He was buried, and on Sunday, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, and he is returning again one day to rescue his people into eternity. That is the gospel, but in order to receive the gospel, you receive it not by sight, but you receive it by faith. Without without faith, the gospel doesn't stick without faith it is just an intellectual set of facts that doesn't have bear fruit in our lives that's why there are some people who believe and are saved and there are some people who hear and are not saved I can share the truth of the gospel with an atheist like Richard Dawkins but until Dawkins receives that truth by faith it is just an intellectual exchange I once took a New Testament class at UT Chattanooga from a man that didn't believe the Bible He could tell you all the facts about the New Testament. He could tell you all the nuance of the New Testament. He could name all the characters of the New Testament. He could have the books of the New Testament memorized, but the man did not believe the gospel, and so therefore he was not a Christian in spite of the fact that he was a professor of New Testament. It's possible to know these facts but not receive them by faith. It's possible to receive these things as an intellectual exchange without actually receiving the benefit by faith. If you are a Christian today, you got there by faith, not by any other mechanism. For it is by faith you were sa- It is by grace you were saved through faith. It is not by works. It is an act of God's grace that you receive by faith. Now, faith is a major word. We could spend a long time talking about faith and unpacking this idea of faith, but Paul does something remarkable here. He combines it with the word work, and now we have the work of faith. This does not mean that faith is a work that you have to do to become a Christian. Instead though, the the word Paul uses implies action, activity, and movement. You ever heard the word ergonomics before? Ergonomics is the study of work and efficiency and and, and making the most of of, of productivity. The the word here Paul uses is where we get that word ergonomics from. It's about work, It's it's about being useful, it's about productivity. What this means is that the work of faith suggests that there are real consequences to our faith. If it's just an intellectual exercise, there are no consequences. But when we actually receive the gospel by faith, there are real consequences to our faith. Listen to me, church, being a Christian ought to be consequential, it should matter. It is not an insignificant decision. It is not a, a personal decision. When you give your life to Christ, you are declaring to a watching world, I belong to Jesus. And that is no small matter. By linking work and faith, Paul is making a very critical argument about the nature of salvation. True faith results in true work. For the church at Thessalonica, Paul points out the consequences of their faith down in verse 8. He says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we did not say anything. Paul is telling, commending the church. He's like, I don't have to tell people about y'all. Because your faith is so real that everybody knows it. Your reputation is one of a church that's on fire, a church that is working, a church that is serious. He doesn't even have to tell people, have you heard about the church at Thessalonica? Other churches are like, Paul, tell us more. Tell us about this church. We want to hear what's going on there. Paul is grateful. He's grateful for their work of faith. It should be truly alarming for us in our community the number of people that we know that can tell you who Jesus is. They can tell you something of what Jesus has done. But when we really get down to the brass tacks of their life, there's no distinguishable or measurable indicators of true saving faith. Some of you in this room watching online They fall into this category. You can tell me all about Jesus. You've been to VBS, you've been in Sunday school, you've you've heard, you've listened to sermons, you know about Jesus. But if we're examining the body of work of your life, if you're just honest and looking in a mirror right now, you see the fruit is not there. The work is not there. I know, I know what I'm supposed to believe. But there's been no consequences in my life of, the, of that belief. There's been no outflow of that. There's been no results of that work that God has done in, in my heart. And listen to me, you will not be saved by intellectually acknowledging the truth of the gospel. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And true saving faith produces genuine spiritual fruit which leads to the second statement of Paul's gratitude here. The second thing he says, he is, he's grateful for their labor of love. Again, in the English language, labor and work are synonymous. We would, we would look at this and we would say, well, well, we just translated this so we didn't repeat the same word over again. But it's a totally different word in the original language. Paul uses a totally different word. Here, labor means toil. It means hard work. Where where the other word, the first word he uses talks about just productivity and, and accomplishing things. This is about sweat. This is about getting the job done. This is about putting forth the effort. This is about putting your hands to the plow and doing the hard work that is necessary. This is talking about the difficulty of a certain task. And here for Paul... This idea of labor, of toil, is linked to his concept of, of love. Now, we'll get into this deeper when we get to chapter four, but we can sort of scratch the surface here just a little bit because we understand something here. Loving people, loving people's hard. When we talk about loving people in the church, it doesn't get easier because I hate to break this to you. This room is literally filled this morning with imperfect people. From the top to the bottom, Foster's picking on the balcony. Y'all on the floor just as guilty. (laughs) Imperfect people fill this room. We're all sinners. Let's say it together. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Every single one of us, we are imperfect, guilty sinners. We know about each other's flaws and shortcomings. Some of them are minor. Some of y'all drive too fast. I don't stop at stop signs well. I mean, we, we understand those minor flaws. Some of us got major ones too. And we know about those. We learn about those. We have to live understanding each other's flaws and shortcomings, and we recognize those failures. And it's very easy for us to approach this community with an expectation of, I'm right and y'all are wrong. But the truth of the matter is, is this community is full of people who are all wrong. We all come up short. Our failures are evident. Mess up today, and somebody will take your picture and put it on Facebook. Promise you. This is the world that we live in. At some point in time in the last 100 years, we started communicating that being a Christian is easy. Let me assure you, it's not. It is not an easy process. Becoming a Christian is easy. These, these folks that we baptized today, it wasn't hard to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. That wasn't, a, that wasn't hard work. But every one of them, now that they're choosing to, to walk with Jesus, they've got a hard work, they've got hard work ahead of them that they're gonna be working out for the rest of their lives. This church that Paul is writing to, this church was birthed out of intense scrutiny, if not outright persecution, and they continued to suffer because of their trust in Jesus. But they continue to do the the work that's necessary. I look at churches like Thessalonica, I can't help but wonder how that church would look at our church today. We, We read about this church in Thessalonica and the struggles that they face. Last week we looked at Acts chapter 17, we read about how the city raided the church, drug out the church leaders to stand in front of the city authorities. I mean, just imagine how the reaction would be if Walker County Sheriff rolled up with some FBI agents. That seems a lot more likely than it used to. And drug out me, and where's Justin? Where you at, Justin? Carew, he's chairman of deacons. We're gonna drag him out. You know, we'll get, we'll get the trustee chairman, Larry, you're getting drug out. We'll get some personnel committee chair, leaders as well. We'll drag some deacons out. They'll put us in handcuffs and make us stand before the magistrates and say, these people believe in Jesus you imagine the outcry if something like that were to happen? The, the, the rage that would happen? In this day, this was normal. What was outrageous is that the church believed in Jesus. They look at us today, man, we've got it easy. We've made it as easy as possible to be a Christian. We've taken away as many obstacles as we can. They say that active church members, this is what the statisticians say. They say that active church members come to church once a month now. That's how they measure activity in church now. Once a month. I don't think it's that way for the church at Thessalonica. And so loving the church was hard, it was toil. It was challenging. And so far, everything Paul has talked about has been work. The work of faith, labor of love. It's fulfilling work, but it's still work. And we're even supposed to put work, put to work at loving each other. We're supposed to continue that work. But then he's got one other characteristic: the steadfastness of hope. Again, these are great words that we dig into just a little bit more than than what we get on surface level. And the original language that the Bible is written in the Bible uses prefixes much like we do in the English language. And so, for example, if an airplane, like that airplane that Foster had up there, if it flies hypersonic, what does that mean? That means that it goes faster than the speed of sound. It means it's hypersonic. If the doctor looks at you and says, you've got hypertension, that means that your blood pressure is more than it ought to be. You've got hypertension. If you, uh, if you speak in hyperbole, that means you've got more bully than you're supposed to. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's, a, that's an actual Greek word, and it means, to, it means to throw beyond. And so when somebody uses hyperbole, they're speaking in exaggerations. They're, they're throwing beyond the truth. That's what hyperbole means. It's that word hyper there. Steadfastness here uses that word hyper. It means to remain and stay But by putting the word hyper in front of it, it means to stay in spite of opposition. It means to stay put in spite of the fact that there are forces trying to get you to move from where you are. And Paul says here that you have steadfastness and hope. That means that you are staying put in spite of everybody trying to move you. I hear that word what comes to mind is standing in the surf at the beach. You know what that's like. If if you're standing, the waves are kind of rough and you're standing in that sand, what happens to your feet as those waves come in? The sand starts to move away. It tries to remove the sand out from under your feet. And after a while, you'll have to move because it's done so much erosion around where you're standing. Steadfastness means you're gonna stand there in spite of it. You're not gonna move. Nothing's going to move you from where you are. You are actively working to stay put by hope The Christians are working on staying put. They're working to remain faithful in spite of efforts to move them. They're working to continue to grow in their love for the brothers in spite of efforts to stop them. And all of this is fueled by their hope in Jesus. It's not fueled by some other motive. It's not fueled by some, some ulterior idea. It's fueled by their hope in Jesus, which is more than just a general positive, generally positive attitude about tomorrow. Hope is the confidence that God is going to do what he says, that God is going to keep his promises. He's going to do what he said he was going to do, and that hope inspires us to stand against the forces that want to move us in a different direction. The church in Thessalonica was founded in the midst of hostility and had a lot of time to spend with Paul. There were all kinds of reasons stacked against them that they should have failed, but they stood strong and they continue to serve as an example for the rest of us. This series through Thessalonians is called Waiting Well. We're waiting on God to keep his promises, but we want to make sure that we're waiting well. And waiting well here, Paul reminds us, is hard work. The church here is eager to see Jesus return. They're way more eager than we are. We've gotten kind of comfortable with Jesus waiting. The church here is like, when's he coming? When's he coming? There's gonna be a lot of Christians when Jesus comes back who are gonna be surprised. I wasn't expecting you today. The church at Thessalonica said, I'm expecting him today, and they're disappointed that he didn't show up. Waiting is hard. Perhaps the church at Thessalonica, more than any other church in the New Testament, the promise of Jesus' return inspired them and motivated them, but they had to wait. They continued to wait just like we continue to wait. But waiting on the Lord here isn't like waiting at a doctor's appointment. It not waiting at a doctor's appointment. Like, you made an appointment, why do I have to wait when I get here? Why don't you just make my appointment later so I didn't have to wait when I got there? But you go to that doctor's appointment, and you're going to sit there in that waiting room. And I don't know that there's anything that feels like a bigger waste of time than sitting in a doctor's office waiting room. Because you could maybe be productive, but I don't know what it is. I feel very non-productive, waiting in a doctor's office waiting room. I mean, I could bring my laptop and I could write a sermon or I could do Bible study. I could, I could fill the time well. But the reality is, is I'll just sit here and do stupid stuff on a smartphone. Back in the day, they had magazines. Like that's where you, I remember doing magazine sales as a fundraiser and you go to the doctor's office and sell magazines and they had magazines and that was a waste of time too. I hate waiting rooms, I hate waiting in lines because I feel so unproductive. Bring a book, pass the time. But I'll be honest, I don't like passing the time. I don't like just passing the time. As I get older, I realize that I've got less and less of it available and just passing it seems like a waste. I don't like passing the time, I like to be doing things. Waiting on the Lord shouldn't be about passing the time. And right here from the outset of the letter, Paul is not about passing the time. He's using action words to get their attention. You ought to have the work of faith, the labor of love. You ought to be steadfast in your hope. And every one of those is active. Every one of those is work to be done. Every one of those is something that is accomplishing something. Waiting well is about maximizing our output for the kingdom of God While we're waiting for the satisfaction of God's promises, I need you to hold up a spiritual mirror for just a moment. When you consider your life and how you're spending your life, if you're a Christian, are you waiting well or are you just passing the time? Does your life make a difference for the kingdom of God in the places that you that call for your time. Our waiting for the Lord doesn't stop us from sitting in waiting rooms or waiting in lines, but waiting for the Lord happens at our vocations and in our classrooms. Waiting for the Lord happens at our dinner tables. It even happens at the bleachers at our sporting events if we'll let it. Our waiting happens during our commutes while we're using the lawnmower. And so waiting sometimes seems busy. But waiting well means that we, re- we work to redeem even those regular tasks of human life for the gospel. And right out of the gate, we're challenged by the Apostle Paul here to wait well. That doesn't mean that we don't do our very best at our vocations, at our careers. Paul would even say later in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. This isn't about selling the farm and devoting every moment to reading the Bible and singing hymns. This is about making sure that while we work the farm, we're keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. That is our faith working. It means that while we're doing it, we are toiling at loving each other in spite of our imperfections. And while we're waiting, it means that we remain immovable in our hope in Jesus. Some of you here today, you've heard the gospel, but right now, you need more than just hearing. You need to believe the gospel. You need to turn from sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. A camera operator's gonna kill me, but I wanna tell you, tell you something. Today, we started a new tradition On the backside of these walls right here, you can't see it, very few people actually see it. We actually gave the three ladies, young ladies, I'll say that, the three young ladies who were baptized, today, we gave them a Sharpie marker, and we asked them to sign their name in today's date on the backside of, of these walls so that who comes next will look back there and they'll see the names of those who've, who've gone before them. If you get dunked at the lake, we'll let you sign back there too, it's fine. But there's a there's a wall of, of of people who have given their life to Jesus and have been obedient to Jesus. They have heard the gospel, they've affirmed the gospel, but they've also believed the gospel. And the their names are written on the back of these walls. Some of you need to write your name on the walls. Some of you are Christians but you've never been obedient to Jesus in baptism. That work of faith is incomplete because there's an act of obedience that's still outstanding in your life. Some of you here today, you've heard the gospel and you like what it says, but you've never trusted in it. You've never followed Jesus. I'm gonna give you the opportunity in just a moment. If you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, You're gonna have an opportunity in just a moment to make that decision, to hear who Jesus is. He's the son of God, to know what he's done. He died on the cross in your place. The wages of sin is death. So as a sinner, which we've all admitted we are, if you remember that a few moments ago, we're all sinners and the consequences of our sin is death. For those who are in Christ, Jesus paid the penalty. For those who are not in Christ, the penalty is still on your head. But the offer is still extended to you to receive the gift that's been offered to you through Jesus. And you, by faith, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He died on the cross in your place for your sins. He paid the penalty that you were due so that you could live the life that he's offering you. He hung on that cross. He died a terribly cruel death. He was taken down and he was buried in a tomb. And on Sunday morning... He rose again. He conquered death. He died your death. And he conquered death so that you could live forever with him. Like, that sounds good. As a story, there's not a better story. But I want to tell you something. It's more than just a story. Because it is the mechanism by which God wants to change your life and let you live with him for all eternity. And we receive it by faith. It's a gift, it's wrapped. We have to unwrap the gift and receive it. In just a moment, we're gonna pray. I'm gonna give you an opportunity. Say, Pastor, I've never given my life to Christ. I'm not a Christian today. I need Jesus. If you're a Christian today, the challenge is, hi, there's work to be done. We got a work of faith that's got to be done. Our faith ought to be bearing fruit. There's a labor of love to happen within the body of Christ. We ought to be doing that consistently and faithfully, and we ought to be standing firm in our hope regardless of the pressure from outside to change. But for some of you today, the invitation for you is to give your life to Christ. And we can write your name on the back wall back there when it's your turn. I'm going to pray, our musicians are going to come forward, and we're going to have a time to respond. Don't let this moment pass without coming and taking my hand. Jacob will be ready. We'll have other folks who are ready to receive you and help you understand what it means to follow Jesus. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, I'm thankful for your word and with the clarity with which you speak, there is no doubt what you mean when it comes to this idea of gratitude today. Lord, we recognize that our faith ought to produce fruit. Our belief in Jesus ought to be consequential. It should change the way that we live, the way that we conduct our business, the the nature of our relationships. Our faith in Jesus is eternally consequential. Lord, we acknowledge that we ought to love. We ought to love each other. And we ought to work hard at it in spite of our imperfections, in spite of our shortcomings. Lord, help us to stand fast and firm in the hope that we have in Christ. There is a world outside that is working overtime to move us. And so God, today we pray that we would stand firm and actively stand against those things that would seek to lead us away from faith in Christ, lead us away from the church, Lead us away from seeing the world turn to Jesus. So, God, in these next few moments, if there is any here, even now as you work in their heart, God, I gotta believe that you're you're moving in somebody's heart right now. They've heard the gospel, they've heard who Jesus is, what he has done. There's a gift that's on the table have to receive it. So, God, today, would you move in a heart, lots of hearts, that we could add more names to the wall for your glory and for your kingdom. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.